0: In our post-COVID world, we're more aware than ever that air is critically important to our health. Our guests are the top experts in understanding everything from smoggy air we breathe outside to what we inhale when we're in the office.
1: There's something in the air that we are breathing in, whether it is the COVID virus or whether it is wildfire smoke particles or gases and particles that are emitted by, our, by gas stoves and cooking. Um, and these have really um, can have really strong impacts on our health and can really have, have adverse effects on our health that I think we didn't appreciate as much until the pandemic came around and we realized that it was an airborne virus.
2: Joining us is renowned environmental engineer Lindsay Marr and Peter Templeton, who's the president and CEO of the U.S. Green Building Council.
3: First, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Marr's work and really grateful for everything she has contributed to the science that we draw from um, and ensuring that our our buildings are are delivering on those expectations of better indoor air quality. Um, So this is something that's actually been exciting. Over the course of the 30 years of evolution, there is a lot that has come into play. When we started, there were a lot of prescriptive measures that we have encouraged, you know, to higher rates of filtration and to ensure um, that we're doing the right things on the design and construction side and certainly in operations of our buildings.
2: This is Conversations on Healthcare.
0: Well, welcome Professor Marr to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on the MacArthur Foundation naming you as one of the recipients of the It's Genius Grant just a few weeks ago. Uh, you're an expert on airborne transmission of infectious uh, bioaerosols. Uh, during COVID, you led some groundbreaking research that uh, corrected our uh, our understanding or maybe our misunderstanding of how the virus was spreading. I'm wondering if you could take our listeners through your discovery.
1: Yeah, a lot of that was based on our research that had been going on for a decade before that on flu transmission. And we thought that a lot of respiratory viruses transmitted in the same way um, even though we know the viruses are different from each other, maybe they're different in size and have different um, properties. Um, they're carried in respiratory droplets and tiny particles that are emitted when we breathe, talk, cough, and sing. Whether we are um, a- and these droplets come out, whether we are infected or not. And really, it's the size of those droplets and the ability of the virus to survive in those droplets that dictates how the virus is going to transmit, how it's going to get from one person to another. And so what we found is that the virus, flu viruses, and then since it was later shown that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is released in tiny respiratory particles that are small enough that they can float around in the air for many hours, Um, and that you can breathe these in and become infected, both when you're close to a person, as if you are close to a cigarette smoker and breathing in a lot of their exhaled cigarette smoke, and also if you're farther away, um, because they can be carried great distances, and they can build up over time in a poorly ventilated room like cigarette smoke does, and so that can lead to exposure and infection too.
2: We know the history of science and medicine is full of uh, stories of very uh, expert people like yourself who are brave and bucked conventional thinking. Uh, We're really curious uh, on a personal level, where did you find the fortitude to proceed with this? Were you always convinced that the COVID virus would turn out to be airborne in this way that really changed the way we modified our public health protocols?
1: Um, From what I was seeing coming out of China in December and January, I was pretty sure that the virus was transmitted through the airborne route. Um, It was because the original SARS um, from 2004 was shown with pretty good evidence to be airborne. And then we saw how rapidly it was spreading in China. And then we saw photos of healthcare workers where they're wearing full respiratory protection. And, uh, you know, I don't, people just don't wear that just. For fun, um, you know, it's it's expensive, it's onerous, it's burdensome, and so I figured they were wearing it for good reason. Um, and and this was also based, of course, on what I knew mechanistically, kind of fundamental science about how viruses are released from people's noses and mouths and how they move around in the air. And so based on that, and then really what finally convinced me um, was seeing the Skagit Valley Corral outbreak in the U.S. in early March of 2020, where uh, I think almost 90 percent of the, the, the attendees at that choir practice got infected, even though they knew the virus was present, they avoided shaking hands, they maintained their distance, but they were together vocalizing for a long period of time in a poorly ventilated environment. And so for me, that was kind of like the final thing. Although even right before that, I had posted on Twitter, you know, let's talk about airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2, um, because uh, you, I, I we needed to clear up a lot of misunderstandings and um, incorrect assumptions, and uh, I wanted to present a more accurate view of how the virus is transmitted. And the fortitude that really came from, I was pretty sure I was right because my knowledge was based on physics, and you cannot violate the rules
0: of (laughs)
2: physics. (laughs) It's a good lesson for everybody.
0: You know, I'm wondering, uh, some people think the uh, COVID's in our rearview mirror, but it's not. And so many people are still looking for some guidance. When I go to these large events, should I be wearing a a KN95 mask or how, how should I walk through this lifetime uh, given that COVID's still all around us, it's mutating uh, all the time. Uh, I want to both be safe and I want to have a life. What's, what's your secret sauce, if you will, uh, that might give people some guidance, no, no uh, assurances, but what's, what's the best strategy in your mind?
1: Well, first of all, it comes down to your own personal risk tolerance, which is going to be affected by your own health conditions. If you're immunocompromised or you live with people who are, then you're going to take extra precautions. You know how how disruptive is it going to be to your work and life schedule if you're sick for a few days? You know, if it's not that disruptive, then you can afford to take a few more risks, but. If you, you know, have some critical event coming up, maybe the in the week ahead of time, you wanna be extra careful. And so what I do is I think about these higher risk environments. Um, and in those situations, I, I wear my N95 um, and I, you know, I really pay attention to what's going on around me. And those are you know, places where it's crowded, where if I hear people coughing, of course, if I'm in the airplane while we're still on the ground, when the ventilation system may not be running, um, you know, I've heard a lot of people who have been getting sick recently, COVID, and other respiratory diseases when traveling. Um, you know, that's common. We're in these big, crowded environments, and that's uh, where the, you know these viruses are floating around the air. It's very easy to, to, to if they happen to be there, you're going to be exposed. And, um, you know, in some cases, your immune system can fight it off. In some cases, it can't.
0: But it's a great well, tool. A, the, the mask yeah. is a great tool. And You've talked uh, about uh, air, uh, the turning of air in a room. Uh, when you were talking about on the, on the tarmac, the plane is still not engaged. It's not turning the air at uh, six or ten times the, uh, uh, the cycle time. What about for hospital healthcare facilities? What's your recommendation uh, for the amount of times that air should turn? Or for most people who are listening in their own home, what can they do?
1: Well, hospitals have to follow existing regulations and guidelines, which are that they have to have at least six air changes per hour. So the air in a room changes over six times, is replaced with cleaner outdoor air, filtered air um, in patient rooms. And then I believe in surgical theaters and other critical areas that um, it has to be 12 air changes per hour, which means at least every five minutes the air is changing out. Now, the hospitals really have excellent ventilation, because if we think about our homes and other places, we typically see more like half an air change per hour, meaning it takes two hours for, for that air to change over, or uh, maybe up to three air changes per hour at best. Um, the CDC is now recommending five air changes per hour in every every public place, um, and you know that would be could be your home too if someone's infected and you want to increase ventilation, reduce the risk of transmission to family members. So we, um, I, I think the critical places to to focus on this though are things like schools where lots of kids together for long periods of the day and the ventilation there is usually well below the recommended value of five air changes per hour.
2: Professor Marr, you wrote in the New York Times recently about COVID and the link to wildfire smoke and gas stoves and what this tells us about air quality. Explain this for us. We may not see the connection the way you do.
1: Yeah, I think what these, um, it, it's that there's something in the air that we are breathing in, whether it is the COVID virus or whether it is wildfire smoke particles or gases and particles that are emitted by our by gas stoves and cooking. Um, and these have really um, can have really strong impacts on our health, and can really have have adverse effects on our health. That I think we didn't appreciate as much until the pandemic came around, and we realized that it was an airborne virus. I'll make an analogy to our drinking water, and if uh, everybody knows that they shouldn't drink dirty water, and if somebody hands you a glass of dirty water, you're you're not going to. Going to drink that um, in the air, uh, you know the same really should be true that we should try to avoid breathing dirty air. It is bad for our health. It causes short-term effects like coughing and wheezing, exacerbates asthma, and it also causes long-term effects. It it contributes to cardiovascular disease. Um, air pollution is uh, um, one of the leading causes of death. Uh, premature death worldwide. It's responsible for 7 to 8 million premature deaths, as estimated by the World Health Organization.
0: You know, scientists and researchers like yourself uh, are running into lots of controversy. So we must ask you about the gas stove controversy and the how opponents have uh, fanned the political flames, if you will, about it. So uh, the House of Representatives passed a bill to block any possible ban on gas stoves even as regulators look uh, into the potential health hazards of gas stove emissions. So let me ask you to explain these health hazards and how severe they are.
1: Yeah, well, gas stoves burn methane. And when you have any high temperature combustion, um, you can form a pollutant called nitrogen oxides. and. Those have, uh, nitrogen dioxide is one of the EPA's six criteria pollutants, meaning that we have outdoor regulations for it because it causes respiratory irritation, things like coughing and wheezing and exacerbation of asthma. And so you're emitting that into your home and it can cause similar effects, of course, in your home. Um, As far as the level of those effects, you know, it's it's not clear. There's... uh, there there is there have been some studies. Um I don't know that we have kind of the the smoking gun type of evidence mm-hmm, yet mm-hmm. to say that, oh, in all situations, all gas stoves are terrible. Certainly if you have good exhaust, really strong exhaust ventilation, that will help mitigate any risk. But um, you know, I the Laws to, to kind of preemptively ban bans on it, uh, it seems silly. It's like, do we, would we have a, a law to ban a ban on cigarettes? Uh, it's, I don't know, it just seems a little bit um, premature to enact those types of rules, too.
2: Professor, we'll be talking next on our program with the president and CEO of the U.S. Green Building Council you've noted that uh, we need major improvements in ventilation and filtration in buildings as as you've just been describing if you were in that interview what would you want to ask the green building council and do you think they're moving fast enough um
1: i would ask them you know have do do the green building um guidelines have you know do they give sufficient weight to Clean indoor air, because they they certainly consider energy consumption and thermal comfort. Um, and I, you know, I think we need to make sure that the clean indoor air and healthy built healthy indoor air is being properly weighted, and to really think about innovative ways to do that, that where we don't necessarily have to make our buildings so tight that the air becomes stale and unhealthy in them.
0: Wondering which communities you look uh, to for leading the way to improving air quality. And maybe uh, if you know this, what what's the secret of their success?
1: Wow, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I would say that EPA has, has a long history of um, outdoor air quality regulations and guidelines that have really help clean up our outdoor air. So I think if we look over the past 50 years in the 1970s, um, air pollution in the US was really terrible in some cities. And so we've come a long way um, due to that, um, also with leadership by the California Air Resources Board. Um, beyond that, I think the American Lung Association looks a lot at this um, and various asthma organizations, I think are, are concerned about it. So that's, I, I think that that's where we can look to for leadership on this because there is a, a good history, a good record where we have really cleaned up outdoor air.
0: And let me ask one more question the, uh, uh, about how many particles really uh, one needs to be, uh, or might g- get one infected. And I know that probably depends on the health of the individual, but I was also thinking about what we've learned from wastewater that we can tell How much COVID might be in the community? We don't have anything analogous that one could wear, or for any environment that you're in that might tell me the air quality uh, around COVID uh, as I walk through a room. Anything that's out there that looks promising, that's exciting, uh, that might help us as we're trying to figure out how to navigate spaces.
1: Yeah. The, the wastewater data are really helpful to see what's going on in the community. If you want to know what's going on in a certain building where you are, that's um, uh, we still have a, some more technological leaps to make. So where we get to the point where you can carry some device into a building and it can tell you, oh, there's lots of you know, coronavirus in the air and here. You should put on a mask or, or go, you know, minimize the amount of time spent here. There's... I think there's discussions about um, trying to monitor this in HVAC systems or looking at dust, but um, we still, and there are some promising technologies that have been developed to do this. There's still cost um, prohibitive, I think, for an individual at this point, but I think, you know, in another several, many years, we will get to the point where we might have something like the handheld carbon dioxide sensor that people have been Carrying around to help assess ventilation in buildings.
2: Well, Professor Lindsay Marr, we want to thank you for joining us. Your work in helping us understand how COVID is spread likely is leading to better air quality in our buildings against a multiple uh, set of factors and not just COVID. Thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We continue to follow your work and uh, Thank you uh, and the group of folks you work with for all the work that you're doing in this area. Let's hope for cleaner air. We're continuing our discussion about environmental quality with Peter Templeton, who's the president and CEO of U.S. Green Building Council. Peter, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you, delighted to be here.
0: You know, the council was founded 30 years ago and is best known for its lead green building rating system I'm wondering if you could uh, share with us an overview of the
3: council and also of LEED. Sure. Um, well, the U.S. Green Building Council is really representing uh, individuals and organizations across the entire building industry that have come together to advance the topics of environmental health and well-being uh, within the context of the built environment. Um, so we work on ways to make sure that we're protecting the well-being of building occupants, our communities, our planet, and our climate um within the opportunities that are presented through building development design operations and construction
2: peter with any kind of rating system certainly something as high profile as i think LEED is there's always questions about its effectiveness there's always skeptics people want to know how do we know that this is succeeding at really creating cleaner energy efficient buildings what's your answer
3: to those questions sure So and that is exactly why we have created the lead rating system is to ensure that there is some sense of certainty in terms of the outcomes that buildings are going to be able to deliver um, for building occupants and, of course, for their owners and for our communities. And so really, we've created a standard that is built on tested, proven strategies and trying to make sure that there's scientific rigor and technical rigor behind that and able to deliver on those expectations. We base our standards on input that we receive from stakeholders across the entire industry uh, through our standard development process, and make sure that we're tying back to the best research that's available and the best uh, in- in- industry information about the ability and accessibility of those strategies to be deployed in different sectors of the industry. So, over the course of the year, we've um, now, sorry, the course of the years, we've been able to reach over 110,000 certified uh, projects, and across those projects, we see That these outcomes are real and tangible through studies that have been referenced um, in every corner of the world about how it is that we deliver spaces that are better for our occupants and our communities.
0: Peter just remind our audience there are different levels for lead is that
3: correct and maybe just sort of walk through that hierarchy for us. Gladly so the lead rating system is structured as a rating system itself with outcomes that come from certified all the way to platinum certified silver gold platinum certification at different tiers of building performance. And so we're trying to encourage every building to embrace the opportunities that it can to optimize its performance. And so encouraging higher levels of performance in all circumstances.
2: And Peter, we uh, also interviewed Professor Lindsay Marf, uh, who's a pioneer in understanding uh, the role of COVID's airborne transmission. Uh, something we all got a crash course in over these last years. We told her we'd be talking with you as well, and and I think her question is: So how do you, how do you measure for clean and healthy? indoor air. Uh, when we now have this recent experience of COVID, we all know the airport uh, stories, the getting on the plane stories, the uh, exam room issues. How, how is that considered in lead? that sort of health dimension of it?
3: Yes. Well, first, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Mar's work and really grateful for everything she has contributed to the science that we draw from and um, ensuring that our, our buildings are, are delivering on those expectations of better indoor air quality. Um, so this is something that's actually been exciting. Over the course of the 30 years of evolution, there is a lot that has come into play. When we started, there were a lot of prescriptive measures that we have encouraged you know, to higher rates of filtration and to ensure um, that we're doing the right things on the design and construction side and certainly in operations of our buildings. But in 2023, we have accessibility to building sensors and monitors that help us ensure that that ongoing performance of the indoor environments that we're creating can continue to be maintained at those highest levels. Um, So it's exciting because of the science that we have, that we understand more what the impacts are and what we need to be looking at in terms of CO2 levels and particulate levels um, that are in our level and what that actually translates to in in terms of filtration levels and air exchange rates. So really excited that the continuing dialogue has advanced both in terms of strategies and technologies that can support that level of performance.
0: Peter, one of the incredible things that happened in the pandemic was the opportunity for people to uh, telecommute to work. And I know in our own experience, my God, we had hundreds of people all across the country who are working from home now, which is a great opportunity for them. But it also caused an enormous impact on office uh, space. Right. And there's been this uh, real movement to convert from office to residential conversion, I'm wondering how you all are playing a role in terms of policies and best practices uh, with climate change
3: in mind. Sure. So first, I should say that we've always been strong proponents of adaptive reuse. And so as the market has evolved, we want to make sure that we're continuing to leverage the the building assets that exist um, that have the minimum impact on our environment and our communities if we're able to repurpose them. And so the conversation now as you've mentioned is really focused on how offices are converted into to residences and lodging solutions which is also an opportunity for us to address issues around housing access and affordability in many cities and communities across the world so both on a policy level and a practical level we're trying to support the industry's efforts to ensure that they're able to undertake um, these types of transitions It is not straightforward as it may seem uh, to folks that aren't the industry. There are challenges, certainly on permitting and and the ways that cities approach these types of topics, and also the buildings themselves that may not convert as readily uh, to different use types. Uh, But we're trying to prepare guidance. We've just released some guidance um, in September of this year to help the community understand not only how they can undertake some of these conversions, but how they can do so in ways that are going to achieve um, green building leadership levels of performance.
2: Peter, I wonder, uh, maybe uh, expanding on uh, the locus of these efforts a little bit, we've talked on our program about why the healthcare sector uh, needs to do so much more on the sustainability front. Uh, Certainly, one thinks of big hospitals when we talk about that, but healthcare happens in so many places around the country. What are some of the best practices that you can share about the healthcare sector and what it can do on sustainability and quality of air?
3: Very well, and I'd also just like to add that while the industry as a whole needs to make progress, as every industry does, in this context, there has been a lot of great leadership examples to point to um, across the, the healthcare sector. I'm really excited to have worked with so many healthcare facilities around the world. Um, now, over 3,800 of them um, that have gone through the process, and excited to use those as, as examples that we can point to. But there are special challenges in the healthcare environments, particularly when you're talking about hospitals and and primary care uh, facilities that require 24-7 operations and redundancy and higher levels of air exchange and things of that sort, just to maintain their their normal operations where there are increased energy loads um, and other vulnerabilities. We want to make sure that everyone is mindful of the the trade-offs and the opportunities that are presented within that. We ourselves have created a lead for healthcare guidance and have worked closely with others in this um, sector to make sure that those practices are, are understood and that they're attainable uh, for as many of those facilities as possible within the industry. Um, But really excited to see that those showcase examples of early leaders in this space are being embraced um, so widely um, across the sector.
2: I appreciate those comments. And I I think uh, there has been a lot of leadership uh, at the uh, big health system level, but I think trying to make it uh, tangible and real for the people at the level of the practice. And thanks for Mentioning primary care, certainly when we think about COVID or even tuberculosis, even measles uh, puts terror in our heart. When we think about somebody walking in with measles, you don't have time to prepare for somebody with an infection like that. You have to be ready with the air exchanges. And I uh, just wonder, uh, does does LEED sort of lay out a roadmap for the people who aren't going to rebuild their whole uh their whole enterprise, but what they can do to have the safest environment possible. How, how do you work at that level, kind of that first or second rung in the healthcare system, which is most likely to come in contact Absolutely. with areas of concern?
3: And yeah, you know, appreciate the, the the focus and the opportunity to to address that topic because it is critically important. We understand that not everyone has the opportunity to build a new facility from the ground up, or even to do a major renovation of their facilities, and we want them to take actions within the, the scope of influence that they have, and so. First and foremost, we're, of course, looking at higher levels of filtration um, as a first step to make sure that we're removing contaminants and CO, CO2 levels um, that are not as sustainable by, you know, air exchange rates and things of that sort. We do provide guidance and manuals that help address that. And even if folks are not on the continuum towards the leadership certification level, there are steps that they can take that help them improve their performance over time. And we want to make sure that those are positioned um, as immediate steps that they can take to improve those environments.
2: Well, Peter, if I can uh, maybe get one more question. and We went from the micro level of uh, the person, the sector, the building, to the macro uh, at the world level. I wonder, uh, would you like to give a shout out? Are there any communities around the country where you've seen sort of that community-wide uh, embrace through building codes, through community action groups, through coalitions with developers uh, and builders that you think there's really been a model of kind of a cooperative collaborative approach uh to getting to better uh better uh air quality in our buildings
3: that's actually it's it's actually quite encouraging that we're seeing this activity in communities not just here in the us but around the world that are embracing the opportunity and we know that so much of the action that's required to address these challenges is going to be at the local level so we're excited to see that there is you know increased adoption of building codes and performance standards for buildings to ensure even the baseline of building performance is improving over time. And we see that you know being adopted here in, in Washington, DC, in New York City, in Boston, but also in other communities across the, the country as a model for encouraging all buildings to, to step up to improve their performance and deliver on these expectations. And then similarly, the adoption of LEED standards um, as incentives, both for the public sector themselves, but also uh, for, uh, uh, private sector communities is also very exciting. And so we have a program on leave for cities and communities where we have over 100 uh, cities and communities across the country um, that have taken up this challenge of producing their impacts and ensuring that they themselves and the, the citizens that they represent are on a pathway towards achieving these climate goals.
0: Oh, well, that's so great. great. Peter, thank you for joining us and for the leadership you're providing. And the council is also thanks to our earlier guest, Professor Mar, and thanks to our audience. Be sure to go online to chcradio.com to sign up for our emails. You can also share your thoughts and comments about this program. Peter, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today.
3: Thank you again.
2: This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.